Be seated and turn to Ezra chapter 10. Ezra chapter 10. This is found in your, if you're using a pew Bible, pages 648, continue on to 649. Yes, Miyoshi. So page pages 648 on to 649. We're just going to read the first 17 verses today. The first 17 verses of Ezra chapter 10. Ezra 10, verses 1 through 17. In your pew Bible starting at page 640. 48. Hear now the word of God. Now, while Ezra was praying and while he was confessing, weeping, and bowing down before the house of God, a very large assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him from Israel, for the people wept very bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, one of the sons of Elam, spoke up and said to Ezra, We have trespassed against our God and have taken pagan wives from the peoples of the land. Yet now there is hope in Israel in spite of this. Now therefore let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and those who have been born to them, according to the advice of my master and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God, and let it be done according to the law. Arise, for this matter is your responsibility. We also are with you. Be of good courage and do it. Then Ezra arose and made the leaders of the priests, the Levites, and all Israel swear an oath that they would do according to this word. So they swore an oath. Then Ezra rose up from before the house of God and went into the chamber of Jehohanan, the son of Eliashib. And when he came there, he ate no bread and drank no water, for he mourned because of the guilt of those from the captivity. And they issued a proclamation throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the descendants of the captivity that they must gather at Jerusalem and that whoever would not come within three days, according to the instructions of the leaders and elders, all his property would be confiscated and he himself would be separated from the assembly of those from the captivity. So all the men of Judah and Benjamin gathered at Jerusalem within three days It was the ninth month, on the twentieth of the month, and all the people sat in the open square of the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of heavy rain. Then Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have transgressed and have taken pagan wives, adding to the guilt of Israel. Now therefore make confession to the Lord God of your fathers, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the pagan wives. Then all the assembly answered and said with a loud voice, Yes, as you have said, so we must do. But there are many people. It is the season for heavy rain, and we are not able to stand outside. Nor is this the work of one or two days. 
for there are many of us who have transgressed in this matter. Please, let the leaders of our entire assembly stand, and let all those in our cities who have taken pagan wives come at appointed times, together with the elders and judges of their cities, until the fierce wrath of our God is turned away from us in this matter. Only Jonathan, the son of Asahel, and Jehaziah, the son of Tikvah, opposed this, and Meshullam and Shabbatai, the Levite, gave them support. Then the descendants of the captivity did so. And Ezra the priests, with certain heads of the father's households, were set apart by the father's households, each of them by name. And they sat down on the first day of the tenth month to examine the matter by the first day of the first month. They finished questioning all the men who had taken pagan wives. My friends, as we look today at Ezra 10, first of two-part message, two-part, two sermons, we see that Ezra gives the solution to the intermarriage problem. Ezra gives the solution to the intermarriage problem. This chapter helps us to understand about repentance and church discipline. The theme of repentance continues from chapter 9, which we looked at over the previous several weeks. Church discipline is something that we see here and in other places. Now, we've already looked at the question of the intermarriage, but I want to say it again. Why was this, this intermarriage here such a big problem? It's not so much because of the ethnicity that was involved here, or or, uh, race, if you will, but rather it was because the people were guilty of disobeying God's express command, Deuteronomy chapter 7. Furthermore, they had profaned, they had treated with disrespect their special place and favor as the people of God. They had exposed themselves and their children to the danger of idolatry and to other sins. And furthermore, they were threatening the continuance of a godly line through which the Messiah, the Christ, would come. And as I suggested previously, this is why it was such a, a, why there was such an extreme reaction, if you will, uh, by Ezra. And I think we will see, Lord willing, next week as well, that same issue of why in this particular context, sin is serious, but why was this sin in particular of such concern? So, first of all then, let us look at the repentance that we continue to see here in chapter 10. And so, remember here that uh, Ezra, we find here in chapter 10, verse 1, Uh, he continued to pray and to make confession, confession of of his sins, confession of the sins of the people. Uh, As in uh, chapter 9, verse 1, we see him weeping and casting himself down uh, before the house of God. And so there was great concern on the part of Ezra. Then we also see here that a great assembly, a very large assembly, a great assembly gathered. Um, 
and uh, one of these, notice, notice this assembly, by the way, it's men, women, and children. So it's the entire covenant community that's involved here. And out of this great assembly, Shechaniah, one of those, led the rest of the people. We find here, verse 2, that he confessed sin. We have trespassed against our God. We have taken pagan wives from the peoples of the land. He resolved to follow the Lord uh, by putting away these strange wives. Verse 3, now therefore let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and those who have been born to them according to the advice of my master and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God. So he uh, resolved to follow the Lord by putting away these strange wives, and he encouraged Ezra to take decisive action. Verse 4, arise, for this matter is your responsibility. We also are with you. Be of good courage and do it. Play the man, if you will. Be courageous. Ezra then, verse 5, Ezra encouraged the chiefs of the priests, the Levites, and all Israel to do something about this. They swore an oath. Verse 5, and all Israel uh, made, made them, all Israel, swear an oath that they would do according to this word, so they swore an oath. Oaths are serious business, are they not? And then, not only that, but everyone was summoned. Everyone, just like you get a summons to go into court, everyone was summoned to appear. Now Ezra, we see here, went uh, to a priest chamber in the temple, and he fasted and he mourned. Notice what he says here. He, verse 6, he ate no bread and drank no water, for he mourned, he was sad, because of the guilt of those from the captivity. And all the men we see here in verse 7, all the men of Judah and Benjamin came together, were admonished by Ezra, and confessed their sins. Now let me pause here then before we go on to point two. Point one here is repentance. Let me pause here and talk and apply this, talk about some lessons that we can learn from this. The first is that there is a progression or there is a chain of repentance, okay? There's a chain of repentance. So first of all, the law produces conviction. The law produces conviction. You know, you're driving down the road and a policeman pulls you over and all of a sudden the long arm of the law is after you, right? All of a sudden, your heart starts palpitating a little bit, right? Okay. The law produces conviction. Of course, here, the law is in terms of the law of God, then the specific commandments that had been violated in terms of this. So you're convicted, but that conviction properly doesn't lead to covering it up. It leads to godly sorrow, first of all, that you... You say, it's not just, it's because I feel bad, but it's because I have violated God's law. I have broken his law. I have offended my Father in heaven. And so godly sorrow leads to confession, and then confession 
in turn leads to repentance and turning away from the sin. And then we see that there are positive effects on others as well. And so we find here then that there is a progression, that there is a chain of repentance uh, that must be followed. Secondly, the covenant forms the context. The covenant forms the context. Now notice the references here. First of all, we see in, um, in verse 3, now therefore let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives. Well, that's, they're vowing to the Lord there, basically. Yeah. But it's part of the, the covenant. They're vowing to the Lord. You see also, we didn't read verse 19 today, but it, uh, it says here, and they gave their promise that they would put away their wives. And the, uh, in the King James, they gave their hands, as it were. They, they struck hands. They gave their hands. They gave their promise that they would put away their wives. Again, this is covenantal type of language. And of course, the law itself is what God has given us to tell us how to live. And so the law itself then is part of his covenant with us. Notice also the significance of this. You see, we have broken God's covenant by sinning. We have broken the law. We have broken his covenant that he has made with us. But also, at the same time, in covenant mercy and faithfulness, he redeems us. So when we talk about the covenant of grace, which incorporates the law, to be sure, to help us know how to live and so forth, but the covenant of grace fundamentally is about God redeeming us. And that redemption, of course, comes through Christ, and comes by means of faith and faith alone. So if you are, let me just say here, if you are drowning in a sea of sin, then you need to repent, and you need to cry out to God for his mercy. You need to cry out to God for his grace. If that's where you are today, that's what you need to do. Right now, you need to cry out to God, for you have broken his law, you have broken the covenant. Thirdly, in that regard, notice the fear, the themes of fear and punishment. Fear, first of all, trembling at God's law. That's for sure. Verse 2, we have trespassed against our God. Trembling at the law of God. Verse 14, trembling at the fierce anger of God, the fierce wrath of our God. We need to do something about it until the fierce wrath of our God is turned away from us in this matter. But did you also notice verse 9? Look at the end of verse 9. It's very interesting. And all the people sat in the open square, the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of heavy rain. Now, the prepositions there are technically different and it sort of indicates that there is a trembling internally, but then there's also an outward expression of it. We're trembling because of the heavy rain. This is the winter time. It would have been cold. You know what it was like a day or two ago in terms of the rain, right? It was beautiful weather. Then what happened? The cold front came in. And when the rain falls and it's cold, 
None of us likes to be out in that, but that's where the people were. And so there was, there was the internal trembling, but also the external trembling, almost as a, as a picture of what was happening internally. And so there was fear, if you will, and punishment. Matter of fact, if you look um, later at uh, verse uh, 44, uh, it says all these had taken pagan wives, and some of them had wives by whom they had children. That implies, actually, that maybe there possibly that there was barrenness. That is to say that some of the people that they married uh, did not produce offspring. And so there was punishment here. For you see, uh, as we will see, they had to put away the wives because even upon repentance, you will reap what you sow. So you can be sorry, you can repent, but sometimes there are consequences to your sins. But then one other lesson I want us to look at here, and that is the idea of hope, the idea of hope, because that's, you see, that's what they're clinging, that's what Shechaniah is clinging to here at the end of verse 2. Yet now, yes, we've trespassed against our God. We've done this horrible thing, yet now, but now, but yet, there is hope in Israel in spite of this. And my friends, there is hope when you turn to God. And this is because of God's great mercy, God's great mercy. There is hope for Israel because of God's covenant. There is hope for his people because of his covenant. Ezra himself here turned to the place of mercy. He was in front of God's house. He was there at the temple, God's dwelling place. The sacrifices were offered, which would have appeased God's wrath. Verse 19, the priest offering a ram for their guilt. And so, my friends, I say to you today, there is hope. There is hope. But secondly, now today, we look at the, having seen the repentance then, we look at the trials, the trials. And so justice then had been delayed, this great sin having been winked at, surely it was known, or at least you would expect it to have been known. But in any case, there was corporate guilt. There, were, there was corporate guilt. It's interesting, there were various peoples, various uh, kinds of people listed here, priests, Levites, singers, and in general, the people of Israel. So let me then draw several lessons uh, with regard to the trials. Uh, we've talked about church trials before. We've talked about church discipline. So let's draw some lessons then in terms of this. Number one, Notice the methodology of church discipline. It was by means of a commission or a court, that is to say by elders, by presbyters that were gathered for this. The discipline itself was not carried out by the crowd, but by duly authorized officials. This was not popular democracy at work here. To be sure, the people themselves Verse 12, then all the assembly answered and said with a loud voice, yes, as you have said, so we must do. 
And so they were in agreement with it. This is sort of like public covenanting. They were in agreement. Yes, we will do this. We have covenanted with our God. We are going to do this. We're going to make sure that this takes place. And furthermore, notice that Ezra did not single-handedly do the work, but nevertheless, it was the leaders, it was the elders who were engaged in evaluating the matter. Everything then was done in an orderly way. There was order in the court, not chaos. It's interesting, you count through the number of of, uh, cases here, There's been some suggestion that maybe this was only a sampling of it. I think not. I think this is an actual listing of the ones that were, at least that were found guilty. Perhaps there were others that were acquitted. But nevertheless, about 110 cases that they handled in 75 working days. So in other words, about one and a half cases per day on an average, or one to two per day. It's interesting that each was appointed to come at a certain time, not in the shivering cold, not immediately, but in an orderly fashion, each appointed to come at a certain time. Notice verse 14, the elders and judges of each city were to participate as part of the careful taking of testimony. And per the law, There had to be proof. Let me refer you to a couple of passages in Deuteronomy. First of all, Deuteronomy chapter 17. Deuteronomy chapter 17 and verse 4. Deuteronomy 17 and verse 4. And this is with regard to um, those who have transgressed his covenant, gone and served other gods and worshipped them, either the sun or moon or any of the host of heaven, which I have not commanded, and it is told you, and you hear of it. It doesn't say you'll immediately judge, but it says, then you shall inquire diligently. You will investigate. And if it is indeed true and certain that such an abomination has been committed in Israel, and so forth. Also, chapter 19 of Deuteronomy, chapter 19 and verse 5, verse 15. One witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits by the mouth of two or three witnesses. The matter shall be established. See, it's interesting, isn't it? And there could, as has been suggested by the commentators, there could have been there could have been some acquittals in terms of this. But in any case, the judgment was not automatic. Remember, do you think this was a slam dunk? But the judgment was not automatic. And the exact violation had to be specified and all of the evidence considered. Now, if you look at verse 15 here, Jonathan, with regard to Jonathan, the son of Asahel, and Jehoziah, the son of Tikvah, you'll notice in the New King James it says they opposed this. It's possible that they did. Um, sort of the minority report, if you will, the, uh, the dissent. Um, certainly Meshullam and Shabbatai, however, were in support, apparently, were in support of this procedure. Um, Notice that this was done, that the judgment then was to be done in front of the temple. 
It was a reminder then, by being in front of the temple, it was a reminder of the supreme judge, God, the God of heaven. And it was done in God's presence, even as we see in 1 Corinthians 5, in terms, or Matthew 18, in terms of turning the keys of the kingdom. It was done in the presence of Yahweh, in the presence of God. Now, let me also say, in terms uh, not only the methodology of church discipline, but the importance of church discipline, the importance of it. Notice the summons to the trial, similar to ecclesiastical church trials or civil trials or criminal trials today. There were threats for not obeying summons. Verse 8, confiscation of all property and excommunication. In terms of the sentence the court effected, put into effect, discipline, this is all in terms, uh, as we find in Matthew 16, Matthew 18, the turn of the keys of the kingdom. And I would also say, in terms of the importance of church discipline, my friends, these are actual people. These are actual people. These are people who trembled in the cold rain them. These were people whose sin is going to be dealt with. These were people who, uh, whom each one, with regard to it, each one was responsible. The actual people. Everyone who made this list is on it to his perpetual pain. And yet I would also say this, that assuming there was repentance here, Assuming that there is repentance, it is also a celebration of the fact that despite the sin, that they were restored. That despite them, God still showed his covenant love to them. And undoubtedly, we someday will meet the people on this list. And we and they together will praise the Lord for his grace and mercy to all of us. But each person, my friends, who has ever lived will someday stand before the judgment seat. And this list serves as a reminder of that. So, by way of application, I have one basic point, and it is this. Rest in Christ. Trust in Christ as the ultimate hope. Now, there are various aspects of hope that we can have for ourselves, and our families, and our church, and our nation. I'm here borrowing from a, um, uh, a minister in Britain, so I'm going to give you several, several terms, all starting with the letter C, as he would uh, talk about, the, the cry of prayer. This gives hope, doesn't it, that that Ezra and others, they, they cried out to God in prayer. Also, the confession of sin, that also can give us hope. The, the fact that the counsel of God was being sought. The fact of the covenant of God. The fact of the courage that we see here as well. Ezra, Shechaniah, and others. But my friends, all of these things are founded upon Christ, Christ, and his sacrifice at the cross. 
and indeed his resurrection. That's why we read from 1 Peter 1 today. Because in 1 Peter 1 and verse 3 we read, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. My friends, ultimately, our hope must be left, must be in Christ. And my friends, let me ask you, is your hope today in him? Is your hope today in Christ? And if not, will you come now to him? Christ our hope. Amen. We please stand for prayer. And Father, we do pray uh, that thy Holy Spirit would take this word and would apply it to our hearts and enable each one here, Lord, to stand in Christ on that great day of judgment. May he indeed be our hope. We pray in Jesus' name.